Relationships have expectations. We expect people to interact with us in a way we find acceptable, and we're offended when they don't. Since the fall, sin makes our relationships full of unfulfilled expectations. And frankly, it's good that some of those expectations aren't met. When I was a child, I expected that my parents' sole purpose for living was to immediately meet my needs. My parents, on the other hand, expected that I would obey them and stop being so selfish. Our expectations for each other were at odds. It took me a number of years to realize that my expectations for them were wrong and their expectations for me were right. When I first married Julie, I expected her to seamlessly fit into my picture of what our marriage would be like. She, on the other hand, assumed that if I had expectations for her, that I would communicate them verbally, since she couldn't read my mind. I'm still learning how to communicate my expectations to her and to get her valuable input into how we grow our marriage together to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. Relationships have expectations. This is true in our relationships with each other, and it's even more true in our relationship with God. This morning, we'll see the expectations God had for his people after they returned from their exile in Babylon. But first, let's retrace some of Israel's history leading up to the day that Haggai brought the word of the Lord to his people. God gave Moses a clear picture of what it meant to have a relationship with him. God initiated that relationship by saving his people from their slavery in Egypt. Then after saving them for himself, he told them how they were to live in relationship to him. Part of the covenant relationship was that God would bless his people when they obeyed him, and he would curse his people when they disobeyed him. Much of Israel's history was marked by a broken relationship between God and his people. God warned his people that if they continued to disobey him, he would drive them out of the land of Israel. The people ignored God's warnings. So God brought the Babylonians to destroy the temple and exile his people to Babylon. Even though God brought the judgment of exile, he graciously made promises that the people would return to the land. During the exile, God brought the Persian king Cyrus to power and roused his spirit to build a temple for God in Jerusalem. Cyrus directed God's people that were exiled in Babylon to return to Israel to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. After the people arrived back in Israel, they built an altar to offer sacrifices to God. A few months later, they laid the foundation of the Lord's temple. But the surrounding people in the land discouraged them from building the temple and also went as far as bribing officials to stop the work on it. What at first seemed like an exciting opportunity for God's people to restore their relationship with God in the land of Israel by rebuilding the temple, over the years degraded into a lot of discouragement and little joy. Along the way, the priority of rebuilding the temple fell by the wayside. The people had moved back into the land of Israel but their hearts were still far from God. Into this situation, God sent the first prophet after the exile to Zerubbabel, the governor, 
and Joshua, the high priest, with a word from God. What is God going to say to this people who have broken their relationship with him many times before and are disobeying him again? How will God respond to his people that want God to bless them, but don't want to do what God commands them? In Haggai 1, we'll see God call out his people's sin in verses 1 through 4. Invite reflection on their circumstances in verses 5 through 7. Instruct them to do what is right in verses 8 through 11. And rouse them to respond in verses 12 through 15. The first thing God does is send his prophet Haggai to the leaders of the people. Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest. They are the first people since returning from exile to hear a word from God. And God gets straight to the point. In verse 2, the Lord of armies says this. These people say, the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The common thinking of the day was that the temple needed to be rebuilt. But now just wasn't the time to do it. Why didn't the people think now was the time to rebuild the temple? When Haggai delivers this message, gives us a clue since we know the exact day that he delivered it. Haggai came to Zerubbabel and Joshua on the first day of the sixth month. On the first day of each month, the people would celebrate the new moon, which was a day of rest and anticipation for what the new month would hold. But as we'll see in the rest of this chapter, there wasn't much to celebrate, and the people's expectation for prosperity weren't being met. Comparing our calendar... To Israel's calendar, their sixth month covers late August to early September, not far from where we are now, actually, at our calendar today. When Haggai brought the word of God, the grain harvest was complete, and they were beginning the harvest of figs and grapes. The harvests weren't good. This wasn't a time of abundance and prosperity like they'd expected. The hopes of a quick reversal of Israel's fortunes after returning from exile had given way to the current reality of barely scraping by. While these may seem like understandable reasons for the temple not to be rebuilt, God gets to the heart of the problem. His next statement through Haggai is to the wider audience of the people gathered for the new moon celebration. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins. Even though the people were barely scraping by, they were busy building houses. But it was their own houses instead of God's house. His house was in ruins while they were tidying up their own. God directly questions their priorities and calls them out on their sin against him. Why have you put off building my temple? to seek your own comforts instead. Why are you expecting me to bless you, but you aren't prioritizing your relationship with me? The people wanted God's good gifts, but weren't as interested in God himself. There's something even deeper beneath the surface here than out-of-whack priorities. The temple is the place where God lives among his people. God's presence with his people is represented by the temple and is the place where God's people meet with him. 
by not rebuilding the temple, the people were in effect saying that it was okay not to have God's presence with them. This is a rejection of God, and God confronts his people about it. God sent Haggai to call out his people on their wrong priorities and their sinful desire to have good things from him without seeking him as their first priority. What the Israelites experienced in Haggai's day has parallels to our day. There are also people today that want to treat God as a cosmic vending machine or a genie who grants their wishes. They have no interest in a growing relationship with God, but hope to find ways to manipulate him to get a better life. These people also expect to go to heaven when they die because they lived a good life. Because they haven't bothered to know God, they fail to understand that God requires a perfect life of obedience to him. Since the fall, only one person has met that criteria. And he's the one we worship and proclaim every week, Jesus Christ. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus did the work for us that none of us could do for ourselves. God accepted his perfect life and perfect sacrifice for our sins. Through faith in Jesus' work on our behalf, we can enter God's presence when we die. But we must enter on God's terms, not ours. Haggai reminds the people of God's terms for being in a relationship with him which is to seek him as their first priority and to rebuild the temple. But Haggai doesn't only call the people on their sin. He also invites them to reflect on their current situation in verses 5 through 7. In verse 5, Haggai says, Now the Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. And then in verse 7, he repeats an almost identical statement. The Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. Whenever we see something repeated in the Old Testament, especially when it's really close together, it's how God draws out our attention to the specific words that are being said. It's like this phrase, think carefully about your ways, is being bolded, underlined, with exclamation points at the end of it. God uses Haggai to invite his people to think carefully about how things are going for them. The common thinking was that it wasn't time to build a temple, but God wanted them to consider how things were going for them in light of this attitude. In verse 6, Haggai summarizes their experiences. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The people were pursuing their own interests, but those pursuits weren't bringing any satisfaction. They planted lots of seed, but the harvest was small. They ate meals, but their food didn't satisfy them. They drank wine, but it didn't make them merry. The clothes they put on didn't keep them warm. The people who earned wages had their money fall out of their pockets and disappear. There's futility in all of their efforts. They are alive, but they aren't living. Life was drudgery, without joy, and nothing they spent their energy on brought any satisfaction. 
God wants his people to reflect on how their attitude toward building the temple impacted the way their lives were turning out. One of the leading indicators we're at odds with God is that we don't have joy and contentment. When we don't love and pursue God, we find that our lives feel pointless, empty, and dissatisfying. This is because knowing and walking with God brings joy in the midst of the sorrow of the sinful world. Contentment, meaning, and satisfaction all come from being rightly related to God. Why is this? It's because God made us in his image and put us in his world. We are tied to him and dependent on him. When we pursue him, we have life. And when we don't pursue him, we experience emptiness, disappointment, and grief. Be aware that the world, the flesh, and the devil will tell you the opposite is true. According to them, our ultimate happiness comes in being true to yourself, not anyone else, especially not God. True happiness is doing what you want, when you want, and not letting anyone keep you from living your best life now. Jesus warned us that turning away from the world, the flesh, and the devil comes at a cost. We may lose relationships with people we love. We may have to make the painful decision that following Jesus is worth losing those relationships, even if we don't know what our lives will be like without them. We will suffer for the sake of following Jesus because the world is opposed to him and those that follow him. But it's worth a short time of affliction now to experience the eternal weight of glory that comes through faith in Jesus. Think carefully about your own ways and where they're leading you. We're going to keep being tempted to turn away from God and go our own way. Remember the outcome of where following God will lead you and where going your own way will lead you. This was a reminder that God provided his people through Haggai and it's just as valuable for us today. One more thing. While we're here in this sinful world, we can be faithfully pursuing God, and that doesn't mean we'll be untouched by grief, loss, or unfulfilled desires. We can hope and ask for God to provide us good things that he, in his wisdom and purposes, may delay or not provide at all. We can trust his good providence, even where it leads to deep disappointment and doesn't make immediate sense to us. We need to keep seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, even when that means he says no to some of the things we deeply desire. The people in Israel in Haggai's day and we in our day find God to be consistent and true. When we ignore God and don't seek him, we're dissatisfied. We may still have food, clothes, and work, but they're unable to provide us joy and satisfaction because those things only come from being rightly related to God. Given the correction that God provided his people through Haggai in calling them out on their sin and inviting them to reflect on their circumstances, he now instructs them to do what is right in verses 8 through 11. The right thing for the people to do is to start rebuilding the temple. 
Go up into the hills, bring down lumber and build the house, and I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord in verse 8. It's always right to obey God. And God tells the people what repenting of their sins and changing their priorities looks like. It begins by agreeing with God that now is the time to rebuild the temple and then gathering the materials and building the house. God tells his people that he will be pleased with them rebuilding the temple and will be glorified in having a place that represents his presence with them. While God declared what was pleasing to him, he also repeated what was displeasing to him. In verses 9 through 11, God says through Haggai, you expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Because my house still lies in ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I've summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields, on people and animals, and on all that your hands produce. God states that he was the one who ruined their harvest. He was the one that withheld dew and summoned a drought on all the work of their hands. Why did he do it? Because his people were busy with their own houses and left his house in ruin. God was working to turn his people from pursuing their own desires while they left God's temple in ruins. Why? According to the Mosaic Covenant, continuing to disobey God would result in more curses. Their failure to obey wouldn't stop God from achieving his promises, but they may have no part in them, which would be a sad end to their expectation of prosperity after returning from exile to the land of Israel. So God ruined their harvest and frustrated all the work of their hands to turn them back to himself. They would only find flourishing in him. So he gave them an object lesson in true futility of not seeking him as their first priority. In his commentary on Haggai, Alec Matir put it well when he said of God, he is not a complacent onlooker. He will be central or he will be at odds. How does it strike our sensibilities that God was actively working to ruin the harvest and frustrate their work? It depends on how we think about discipline and the value of God's corrective work to turn us from our sin back to him. If we think we know best, then we'll see God's discipline as mean and hurtful. If we think God knows best, we'll see discipline as instructive and restorative. Don't we see this being worked out in children all the time? They think they know what's best for them, and they consistently prove that they do not. Part of disciplining children means communicating to them how God knows best and that they need to know and follow him. That's what makes discipline helpful instead of harmful. We're pointing them to turn from their flawed way of thinking to see things the way that God does. To the parents of younger children who say, 
They're too young to understand all the words that I'm saying when I discipline them. My response is twofold. First, you're going to need to repeat yourself many times throughout their lives. So you should take advantage of their limited understanding when they're young to perfect your message. By the time they're able to understand more through their development and maturity, you'll be a clearer communicator of the truth of God. Second, while they may not understand all the words, they will understand your priorities. If you're working to honor God by disciplining your children to know and obey him, you're laying a framework to keep building on throughout their lives. God sent Haggai at a pivotal moment to correct the people and call them to obedience. God showed his people that it wasn't misfortune or a down year that was causing the lack of fruitfulness. It was the people's sin against God that set their focus on themselves instead of him. This is what good discipline looks like. It doesn't let the person keep harming themselves by pursuing futility, and it provides clear direction on how to do what is right in God's sight so that we can grow in holiness. The God who is in control of the universe and has the power to frustrate and the power to bless uses his power to show us how good he really is by teaching us to know and follow him. He truly works for our good by disciplining us to more faithfully follow him. And when we're convicted that we've gone away from him, instead of despairing, we repent and confess our sin to God, knowing he forgives us fully through Jesus. In the first 11 verses of Haggai 1, God called out his people's sin against him. He invited them to reflect on the outcome of their ways. And he instructed them to do what is right. So how will the people respond? In verses 12 through 15, God rouses his people to respond to him with obedience. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God. They recognized that the words Haggai said to them came from God and that God has sent Haggai to them. As a result of hearing God's words and being convicted of their sin against God, they were afraid. They were afraid because they deserved God's judgment. They were afraid because they had failed to rebuild the temple. They were afraid of what the consequences of their sin would be. In this moment of fear, 
God sent another message through Haggai to his people. God told his people, I am with you. Haggai provided words of comfort from God to a fearful people. Haggai assured them that God was present with them, even though they had sinned against him. God knows what we need. He knows that we'll only find life and peace in him. But he also knows that when we mess everything up and want to turn back to him, that we will need encouragement. We need his assurance that he still loves us and will never forsake us. In our moment of need, hear God's word to his people. I am with you. The temple hadn't been rebuilt yet, but God was with them. The rebuilding hadn't even started yet, but God was with them. We can sin and be afraid that God is done with us. He's had enough of us. Truth be told, that's exactly what we deserve. But God is gracious, and by his grace, he calls us back to himself. As we turn back to him, he says to us, I am with you. Do we need to fight against sin in our lives? God is with us. Do we need to trust in him when it seems like all is lost? God is with us. Do we need to be encouraged when our world comes crashing down around us? God is with us. God is with them in another way too. He rouses Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant of the people to begin working on rebuilding the temple. They have the desire to obey, and God provides them the strength to obey. He stirs them up to put their desires into action, to reset their priorities, to put God first, and to do the work God called them to in rebuilding the temple. 23 days after God sent Haggai to Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the people to call them out on their sin, the rebuilding effort is underway. A day of hope is dawning in Israel because God's people are responding in obedience to God's word delivered through God's prophet. The people of Israel whose continued sin had resulted in the destruction of the temple and the exile were now rebuilding the temple with God's help and approval. So what do we make of all this as followers of Jesus? The first thing we need to say is that we're no longer under the Mosaic covenant, but under the new covenant that was purchased by Jesus' blood. After Jesus came and completed his work, there's no need for a temple building any longer. Through faith in Jesus, instead of going to a particular place to be in God's presence, the Spirit of God comes to us and takes up residence within us. The Spirit reminds us of what Jesus has done and is still going to do. He strengthens us to live holy lives for God in this sinful world. The Spirit convicts us when we sin against God and calls us to re repentance and forgives us by graciously taking the work of Jesus and applying it to our account. We have work to do as followers of Jesus. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus, 
so that others may be saved, and we build up our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. Since this is the work God has given us to do, we can be confident that he is with us in this work and will help us to accomplish it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to see your grace and goodness in Haggai 1 this morning. We thank you, Father, that in your people's sin, you sent a prophet to faithfully proclaim your word. We thank you, Father, that your word was direct and to the point. We thank you that you called your people to turn from their out-of-whack priorities to faithfully follow after you. And Father, we ask for each one of us today, as we have similar struggles and needs, may you work in and through us. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus, that as a result of his work on the cross, Lord, that he is not only with you, interceding on our behalf, but your spirit is dwelling in us, directing and leading and guiding us. Father, help us to listen well and to quickly obey you and the direction and guidance you provide us through your spirit. Help us to quickly turn away from our sin and disobedience to you, Father. We thank you for your word and your goodness. We thank you for how you reveal yourself to us, how you have been graciously working in the old covenant and in the new covenant today. Lord, as we face difficulties, challenges, frustrations, disappointments, may you remind us that through the work of your son Jesus, through your spirit living in us, that you are with us. And may that encourage and embolden us in our faith and trust in you. Strengthen us, Father, to run the course you have set for us faithfully and diligently for the glory and praise of your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen.